In 1904, the Strand Magazine published one of H.G. Wells's greatest, in my opinion, greatest short stories, The Country of the Blind. Uh, the story is about a fictional tribe in South America who contract this disease that makes them go blind, and it's hereditary. So after many generations, everyone in the tribe is blind from birth, and that's all they know. Uh, they've come up with their own explanations for the world around them, and to them, the valley that they live in is all that there is. There's no world beyond it. An Ecuadorian man named Nunez is a mountaineer who falls during an adventure into their valley, and he's taken in by the people of this tribe. When he realizes that he's discovered the country of the blind, he remembers a proverb that said, in the country of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so he decides to teach them about the rest of the world in hopes of becoming their leader. And that's when he starts to realize just how upside down their world is. Uh, because they can't see light and dark, they sleep during warm or daytime, and they work during cold or nighttime. Uh, they think the birds overhead are angels, and they really don't understand Nunez when he tells them that he's recently been to Bogota. They don't have any concept of the outside world, and they're completely convinced that there's no such thing. So they think he's just trying to tell them that his name is Bogota. Like, they just don't get it. Uh, to them, the world ends at the edges of their valley, and there's a great roof of stone over the world instead of a sky. Now, they think that Nunez is a lunatic, but he's convinced that he won't survive in the valley without their help, so he renounces his claim to be able to see, and he agrees with them that there is a great stone covering the world. Eventually, he falls in love with a girl who seems to believe him when he tells her about the things he can see, but her father will never allow her to marry him because of his delusions of vision. Uh, when the doctor examines him, he says that he can cure Nunez of his supposed ability to see by removing his eyes. And so uh, he, he loves Medina so much that he actually almost goes through with it before coming to his senses and fleeing up into the mountains in search of Bogota. And as the story ends, he lies back, H.G. Wells says, peacefully contented to look at the stars when night comes. And the story ends. In today's passage, Jesus is going to tell his disciples what it's like to have our eyes opened by him and realize that we are living in the country of the blind. So John chapter 15, we've been looking at this for several weeks now. It's all about relationships. Have you noticed this? Uh, relationship between the believer and Christ. Jesus calls his disciples no longer servants, but friends. And he says we're to abide in him. Uh, the relationship between the believer and the Father and the believer and the Holy Spirit. He says that we will glorify God the Father by bearing much fruit, which the Holy Spirit will produce in us as we abide in Jesus. He says that whatever we, ask in the whatever we ask the Father in his name, God will do it. And now we get to turn our attention to the relationship between the believer and the world. Uh, namely, as one author put it, that we live in the world as those not of the world, but as those who are called out of the world to be a cardinal influence on the world. I'll read that again. We live in the world as those not of the world but as those who are called out of the world to be a cardinal influence on the world. 
So here at the beginning of our passage in verse 18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, the, the phrase the world is not geographical or even referring to all individual people living on earth. It's meant to be understood in a spiritual sense, to mean society uh, as it, uh, or, or in so much as society is alienated from God. That's how the New Testament generally speaks of the world, uh, or even secular, soci- secular society, we might say. Uh, it's the world over which Satan is prince and ruler. We might best understand the use of the word world by thinking about the difference between godliness and worldliness. So Jesus is going to tell his disciples about our relationship as his followers to the world or the secular society, the spiritual social context in which we find ourselves living. So here are the three main points we're going to look at today in the passage. Um, And let me say up front, this is a deep, rich text. Uh, We won't talk about every phrase in a deep enough way today. We can't. Uh, So it's going to require meditation. Ruminate on this text this week. Uh, It'll take prayerful further reading and conversation with other Jesus followers. Uh, Let's dig into this passage in community groups this week and turn over some of the rocks that I'm going to leave untouched to see what truths are hiding underneath because every word was carefully chosen by our Lord and all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So uh, there's a lot more here that we just won't dig into today, but I think the main three ideas in the passage are these. The world's posture towards Christians, verses 18 to 25 as well as 1 to 4. Christians' posture toward the world, verses 26 and 27. And Jesus' posture towards suffering saints. And if you're writing those down with room to make notes, Leave the biggest gap after the first one. All right? So world's posture toward Christians, Christians' posture toward the world, and Jesus' posture towards suffering saints. So let's talk about that first one. The world's posture towards Christian is this, the world hates you. All right? In terms of just quantity of content, word for word, this is the main thing Jesus is talking about in this passage. The world hates the believing, obedient Christian. The very first sentence sets it up. It says in verse 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The word if in this context would be better rendered since or because, if we looked at it in its Greek uh, context, He's saying as a matter of fact, looking beyond the present moment in which he's speaking to the days and years that would follow for his disciples, all the way to today and beyond until he returns, the world does hate Jesus's followers. So he's like, because the world hates you, because you experience this reality of hatred from the unbelieving world, keep in mind that it hated me first. So we have to deal with this reality that the basic posture of the world toward Christians is one of hatred, of hostility. We see from the text that the world will hate us in the same way it hated Jesus and for the same reasons. So let's deal with each of those. The world treats Jesus' followers like they treated him. Uh, Jesus so far in this chapter, you might say, has been telling us about the benefits of being united to Christ. And now we see that he's not going to hide the pain, suffering, trials, and difficulties that also belong to following 
him. In verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we've heard Jesus say that just a couple of weeks ago uh, when he was washing the disciples' feet. So this is happening in a matter of probably an hour for them. Um, And he's like, remember, I just said this, right? In verse uh, 16 of chapter 13, he said exactly the same thing. A servant is not greater than his master. But just one verse before that, he said, I have given you an example, talking about serving one another. So the point is this, Jesus is the prototype or pattern for what it looks like to be a child of God. He sets the tone and pace, not just for what we should think, say, and do, but also for how the world will react. We see some of the ways the world will display its hatred for Christians clearly uh, on display on the cross itself. The world has a cynical indifference to Jesus' suffering. They're literally, they're gambling for his clothes while he's dying. They have contempt for his purposes. They're shouting to him, if you're really who you say you are, save yourself. He's there saving them. And they're saying, we don't care about why you're doing this. Save yourself if you're really who you say you are. They mock his deity saying, hail king of the Jews. And and they express their hatred in violence against his person. They speak bit on him and strike him. And he says, the servant isn't greater than his master. Don't let it surprise you when the world is cynically indifferent to your suffering, especially when you suffer for righteousness sake. Don't be surprised when the world has contempt for our involvement in God's kingdom purposes. When they slam the door in our faces or tell us to mind our own business or actively block us from participating in society in ways that might advance the message and cause of Christ. Don't be surprised when we're mocked for identifying with Jesus, for sharing his message, for agreeing with the principles of the Bible. Don't be surprised when we are hated, reviled, and yes, even physically harmed or killed because of following Jesus. He says in chapter 16, verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. To be put out of the synagogue was to be cut off from social involvement. This meant that they would have no voice, no representation in the public square. They would lose jobs, social standing, family connection. To be kicked out of the synagogue was to be severed from all social resources for survival. I can't read the last part without thinking of Saul before he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, In Acts 7, we learn that Stephen was stoned to death because of the proclamation that Jesus, who the Jews had killed, was the Messiah. He didn't do anything, just told them, this is the truth. You killed Jesus, but he's the Messiah, and they, they stoned him to death. And then Acts 8 tells us that Saul approved of his execution, and a great persecution against the church arose and scattered the Christians all over the region. And then in Acts 9, we read starting in verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Of course, we know the rest of the story. 
Jesus blinds him for three days, sends Ananias to pray for him to regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Saul gets baptized and starts preaching Jesus as the Christ in the synagogues. And then he goes on to write a large part of the New Testament before eventually being martyred for his faith in Jesus. I think Jesus is predicting Saul's conversion here at the end of our passage, but the broader point is that the way of Jesus is so contradictory to the way of the world that when people afflict the church of Christ, they do so believing that they're doing right. The world hates Christians because it hated Jesus. That's the second side of things. The servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted him, they'll persecute us in the same ways they persecuted him. But not only will they persecute us in the same ways, but for the same reasons. Chapter 16, verse 2 tells us they'll think they're offering service to God. How is that even possible? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of hints in this passage, and we're going to look at those. Uh, First, we are not of this world. Verse 19 says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates people who refuse to conform to its norms, beliefs, and patterns of life. Our eyes have been opened and we're living in the country of the blind. They hate us because as John MacArthur said, we aren't part of the system. We exist, he said, as a non-absorbed entity. We are a problem. He goes on, that's how the world views us. We're a problem because we're just not part of it. The world is going a certain way, and we're not going that way. The world believes certain things, and we don't. The world accepts certain things, and we do not. The world says certain things are right, and we don't believe it. We are an alien, isolated entity existing within another system, and we don't integrate. The worldview or uh, perspective of the world is fundamentally flawed, but it is also contrary to the worldview of the mindset free by Jesus. Romans 8 says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And James 4, 4 says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. If you're a friend of the world, you are hostile to God. You hate the things of God if you love and celebrate the things that the world loves and celebrates. This is such a reality for us today. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful this morning that I'm not some megachurch pastor with a big live stream internet audience because what I'm about to say would 100% get me canceled, and I'm not even going to comment on it. I'm just going to read the words of Scripture from Romans chapter 1. But this is going to illustrate just how much the mindset of the world cannot integrate the biblical mindset of Christianity. And keep in mind, it was written 2,000 years ago. Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relationships with women 
and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval or celebrate those who practice them. MacArthur said, the world isn't just fallen, it's falling. And Jesus says, he's chosen us out of that world. Colossians 1 says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Did you catch that difference, domain of darkness versus kingdom of Jesus? That means we're living in enemy territory. If one of us went to a village controlled by the Taliban today and set ourselves up in a public place and started telling everyone who would listen about how great America is and how wrong the Taliban is, how long do you think it would take before we were shot or captured? Why? Because we would be so rude and disrespectful of their culture to do that? Well, sure we would be, but that's not why we'd end up on YouTube. There are, they're not our ally And we would be standing in their territory proclaiming the excellencies of their enemy while decrying their leaders' actions. It's so obvious when we put it that way, so don't be blind to the fact that Satan is our ancient enemy. And as long as we exist as emissaries of light in the domain of darkness, his agents will violently oppose us. We are not of the world. We seek the city that is to come. This is not our home. We are aliens and sojourners here. So the second reason that the world hated Jesus and hates us too is that our message and means expose their sin. Jesus said in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And then in verse 24, he says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. So you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was a friend of sinners. Yeah, he was, certainly. Uh, He and his followers were often ridiculed by the religious elites for partying with people whose choices and lifestyles were viewed by the religious folks as the worst of the worst, prostitutes and tax collectors. Uh, So just a couple of quick thoughts on that. First, we know he went to a lot of parties with so-called sinners, uh, but I wonder how often he didn't get invited back to parties because his message of repentance with sin was too much for them. Uh, Some of them repented, and we have records of that, and they followed him, praise God, but we don't actually know how often it was that his message got him in trouble with those very sinners who he was undoubtedly a friend of. Second, when confronted with a woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, does no one condemn you? After he had 
said that whoever had no sin should cast the first stone to kill her uh, because of the sin she had been caught in. And everybody slowly walked away because they acknowledged that they were all also sinners. And then Jesus turns to her and he doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you, but he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Jesus called sin what it is. Even sexual sin in this case, which is a topic that will get you in quite a lot of trouble in the world that we live in today, a world which idolizes libertarian free will expressed chiefly in the unhindered pursuit of the satisfaction of one's sexual desires. Jesus called sin what it is, but in his grace, he forgave those who were contrite in spirit about their sin. And then in his grace and kindness, he instructed them to stop sinning and live instead according to God's good desires. The world is hostile to the message of Jesus, and we'll see in this passage that we're his messengers. It's interesting. You can say, Jesus is Lord of my life. And most people would pretty well leave you alone about that. But if you say Jesus is the only way to be forgiven of your sins and enter a glorious eternity, which is what Jesus himself just said earlier in this passage, if you say that, then the world will hate you. Uh, several weeks ago, we had a very brave young woman in our community group who spoke up during the discussion. Uh, we just read the passage in John 14, where Jesus claimed to be one and the same with the Father. And then he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Brad asked if, if anything about the passage stood out as noteworthy. And she spoke up right away. She said, I don't like that Jesus said he's the only way to God. Uh, she went on to explain that there are a lot of people who, in her estimation, are good people who are trying to find God in their own way. Uh, now, I'm very proud of our community group and our community group leaders. Uh, they did an, a beautiful job of sharing the good news of Jesus with this woman, explaining that if Jesus is God, then of course, uh, the only way to God is through Jesus. They're the same. Uh, we can't find our own way to God apart from Jesus because there is no other way. And so, uh, we who know Jesus should make every effort to tell as many people as we can about him so that they too can be saved from God's wrath against sin and be united in a meaningful, loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his son. But we live in a culture where the prevailing worldview is secular humanism. So a message that says that none of us is good enough is an affront to the way that people interpret reality. When we start saying that people need a savior, even if we don't say it outright, they draw out the natural conclusion that we're saying that they are bad or flawed in some way, that their desires are not good, and the world hates us for that. John Owen said, gospel truth at once most abases and most gladdens the soul. It's not the good news if we don't deal with the bad news of the effects of our sin. A friend of, a, of mine from college named Matt Papa wrote a song several years ago, right after we got out of school. Uh, the song was called, Woe to You. And he said, where is the justice? Who's preaching the truth? Your sermons are entertaining and your churches are cool. You're grieving his spirit and you're winning the loss to a worthless religion because you don't talk about the cross. Woe to you. Woe to you. Your gospel is tickling our ears to death. Woe to you. You see, a gospel message devoid of consequences for sin is no gospel at all. Sin is the reason Jesus came and died, but that is exactly the gospel with no sin. 
that the world would have us proclaim because it's a more comfortable, palatable message. Jesus loves you is true and feels good to hear, but it's only a half-truth. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, his son. That's the gospel in scripture. But that is a message that will get you in trouble because people don't like to be told we're wrong. Another point Jesus made about this was about his works. Remember, he said uh, the things that he did, which no one else could do, gave credibility to his message. And therefore, those who didn't believe, those who don't believe, are without excuse. He says, these, these things that I've done prove that I am who I say I am. And so the, the unbeliever proves that they hate him and hate the Father by not believing in Jesus after so many proofs. Uh, likewise, we might get away with claiming to follow Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, but if we live up to that statement, the message and the means, if we live up to that statement, if we behave like followers of Jesus, doing as he said that we would, the works that he did, living as people who have been taken out of the world and made to see things and desire things and live out life differently from the way the world lives, we'll discover that the world doesn't appreciate that. It will expose their hard hearts, and we'll find that they hate us the same way they hated Jesus. We live in the same kind of world as the disciples did. Remember that Jesus' message here is one of axiomatic truth. Not if the world hates you, but because the world hates you. Since the world hates you, remember that it hated him first. And the third reason that the world hated Jesus and therefore hates us, too, is that they don't know and love God. They don't know and love God, so they don't know and love us. We won't spend a lot of time on this point today, but uh, he says in verse 3 of chapter 16, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 16 with me. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now listen to this. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ." Last thing I'll say about this point is this. Rod Dreher wrote a fantastic book that I just really can't recommend enough called The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians and a Post-Christian Nation. Cannot recommend The Benedict Option enough. Don't read it alone. Like, let me know. Let's have some conversations about it. It's a, it's a good one. Um, but he said American Christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a secular culture one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense. We speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive to its ears. So the world's posture toward Christians is one of hatred. They express their hatred toward us in the same ways they did to Jesus and for the same reasons, namely, we're not of the world. Our message and means expose their sin and they don't know and love God, so they don't know and love us. So now we have to ask ourselves a pretty hard question. Is my relationship with Jesus producing 
spiritual, social, or physical back pressure and resistance from the world. Uh, or maybe before we get there, there are some other questions to ask, like, do I know Jesus? Has spending time with him changed me such that I think of myself the way he addressed his disciples in verse 16, that he chose me and called me out of the world and appointed me to bear his fruit in the world to glorify God the Father? Is Jesus Lord of my life, or am I still trying to be my own person? If I'm his, am I abiding in him? Do I spend time reading and meditating on his word, praying and seeking to love others by his power within me? If not, then that's likely why we don't experience the hatred of the world. It's like Jesus is saying in this passage, if you belonged to the world, right? He says that. If you belonged to the world, the world would love you as its own. But because I've chosen you out of the world to be mine, the world hates you in the same way that it hated me. So maybe the world doesn't hate you because to the world, you look just like them. Either you've never really planted a flag that says, I belong to Jesus and I'm following him with all that I have and all that I am, or you've said something like that, but for one reason or another, uh, perhaps even in a righteous desire to win the lost from within the culture of the day, we the church have actually become, as Mark Sayers said, colonized by the culture. Um, our, our culture camouflage is just too good. Has the culture so invaded your way of thinking and living that someone who comes over to your house for dinner wouldn't recognize you as any different from them? That they wouldn't ever guess that you're a follower of Jesus? Have we tried so hard to become approachable that we have by our lives, in effect, neutered our message of its efficacy? Now, I'm not saying that we should go looking for trouble. Uh, Confucius wisely said, never trouble trouble till trouble troubles you. And Romans 12, 18 said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Uh, I'm also not talking about people who are having a hard time because they're weird or obnoxious. Uh, there are plenty of people like that who bring it on themselves. Like, if you go up to someone to tell them about Jesus and you look like a crazy, coke-addicted psychopath, then you're, they're right to treat you like a crazy person. Like, chill out. You're not being persecuted. You're just strange, and you need to read a book on social intelligence. So I'm not talking about people who actively seek out conflict, okay? That's not the way of Jesus. I'm just saying that if we're faithful to the word of Christ and we live according to the calling of the Bible, one of two things will happen often. And in fact, we'll experience both of these from different people and it'll become normal for us. Do you remember the two thieves who were crucified next to Jesus, one on either side? One of them was cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit. He repented and believed and Jesus said, I'll be with you in paradise today. And the other one mocked him. Why? Because as 2 Corinthians 2 says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. It's not our job to make the gospel more attractive or palatable. We're simply called to be witnesses to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has said and done, and then let him work. 
Uh, Some people will hate us for it, but others will rejoice and repent and follow him with us. And that's the other side of the coin. The, The world is hostile to the Christian, but the Christian understands that we are sent into the world as those not of the world, but called out of the world to be what? Verse 26 and 27 tells us that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are Jesus's witnesses. Jesus isn't done. I mean, praise God for all of us, 2,000 years after this was written, Jesus isn't done with his work of calling people out of the domain of darkness. And so he redeems us and then sends us to represent him in the darkness as beacons of hope and light pointing back to God. We're not so integrated with the culture so as to have been colonized by it and just look exactly like the culture, but we're close enough that we have an influencing voice as a family of missionary servants, Church of the Valley, to proclaim the good news of Jesus to the fallen and falling world around us. Jacques Martin on the church in modernity wrote, instead of a fortified castle built in the middle of the land. So read there like integrated so much into the culture that we're just built right in. He says, instead of a fortified castle built in the middle of the land, we must think of an army of stars thrown into the sky. Even though we're called out of the world, we're still shining the light of Jesus on the world and trusting him to awaken the souls of those he's chosen to be his. We've already been talking for several weeks about this idea of abiding in Jesus and him abiding in us. And it's in and through that connection to Jesus that he produces fruit through us. And now we see it said clearly, the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls him the helper, is going to bear witness about Jesus in our own hearts. And then as the Spirit proceeds from the Father and indwells the Christian, he'll in turn bear witness about Jesus to the world. So our final thought to consider this morning is Jesus's posture toward the suffering saint. We've considered the world's posture towards Christians, a posture of hatred. We've talked about Christians' posture toward the world, a posture of love for God and love for the world that compels us to share the good news of Jesus with everyone we know. Our eyes have been opened, but we've been given the key to help others see as well the message of the free grace of Jesus. And so we are his witnesses. And so what is Jesus's posture toward us in the matter of suffering because we follow him? Or we might ask it in another way, why is Jesus telling us all this? He says in verse 4 of chapter 16, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And if you look back just a few verses, uh, verse 1, he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Did you know that the same guy who's recording this book, the Apostle John, also wrote the book of Revelation, as well as three epistles or pastoral letters? His first letter was written to a group of Christians who were experiencing a great deal of persecution and were being tempted to return to Judaism. And the book of Revelation, believe it or not, was written to a group of Christians in Asia Minor who were about to experience persecution. Persecution was coming because they followed Jesus. And John used the same type of language in those letters to say, stand firm. I'm writing these things to keep you from stumbling. So John learned that from Jesus. Knowing that a hard time is coming helps us prepare for it ahead of time so that we're not caught off guard or swept away by the force of the tide. 
I had a mentor many years ago who used to say, make provisions in times of strength. This is Jesus in his kindness for us saying, get ready. Following me is going to be the greatest adventure in history, but it's not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to cost you everything, but it'll be worth it and I'll be with you. So prepare to stand firm. John 15 is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Um, So, so honored to get to talk about some of it with you this morning. Um, I love this chapter so much because 18 years ago, the Holy Spirit used this very chapter to unravel my idolatry of self, um, to set me free from working for God's favor and to begin me on a lifelong journey of working from his favor. Uh, Maybe you're new to the idea of following Jesus and now, like we talked about all the suffering and you're just not so sure about it, um, you're counting the cost of apprenticeship to Jesus and, and you're just not so sure. Uh, you should do that. You should count the cost of following Jesus. He doesn't promise that it'll be easy to follow him. In fact, he says, take up your cross and follow me. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that when I take the end of chapter 15 in the context of the whole chapter, I hear Jesus letting me know that the road is going to be perilous, but that he loves me so much that he's going to go with me. Uh, He's going to do all the hard work. I just get to hang out with him along the way. I get to lie back peacefully contented to look at the stars when the night comes because he's opened my eyes. Um. I think this is our last slide. I have this painting hanging in my office at home. Um, One of our dearest friends painted this for us uh, as a wedding gift 16 years ago. Yeah. Uh, It was inspired by John chapter 15. Uh, And so you can see the word abide kind of hidden in the bottom of the trunk there. Um, And and there's this quote that I want to leave you with by J.I. Packer. He said, anyone who is actually following a recognized road will not be too worried if he hears non-travelers telling each other that no such road exists. Let's pray. Father, uh, I praise you that in this journey uh, of obedience to you, you don't leave us alone. Lord, you go with us on the journey. Um, You even bless us with the church, brothers and sisters, to travel along with us. Um, And my my prayer for my brothers and sisters today is that uh, we would not be too worried if we hear non-travelers telling us that no such path exists. Lord, we are uh, standing on the way with you and with one another, and what a gift and blessing that is. God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts this morning a greater desire, yes, to stand firm, Lord, but to be your witnesses, that as your Spirit has illuminated your Word and made it 
real to us as we have seen and known Jesus and seen and known the works that you do, we would desire more fervently to, to say the things that you said and to do the things that you did in order that this fallen and falling world could be pulled back from the brink of their destruction or um, build within us a greater desire to be emissaries of light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.